Hey everybody, welcome to the Compass Church Podcast. My name's Jake, I'm our Three Rivers Campus Pastor, and I just want to take a moment to say thank you for being with us today. We are inching closer and closer to celebrating Christmas together, the birth of our Savior Jesus. But we're not quite there yet. I do hope that you have Christmas spirit all lined up and ready to go and coming out in spades. But there is just a little bit more that we can all learn together from the villain of Christmas. Let's have that conversation with our senior pastor, Jeff Griffin. Wanting to wish a Merry Christmas to all of my friends at the Compass Church. I'm thinking of everybody who joins online. Merry Christmas to you. And to my friends at the Sheridan Prison, also got the Three Rivers Campus and the Bolingbroke Campus and the Wheaton Campus and the Naperville Campus and South Naperville. And here I go. I love it. Welcome to all of my friends at the Hinsdale Campus of the Compass Church. Isn't this exciting? Well, everybody, we are now in week four, last week, of our series called The Villain of Christmas, where we are studying Herod the Great and the, in the nativity story of Jesus found in Matthew chapter two. And to study Herod's life, today we're going to use some produce idioms to understand his family. Our, our text today is going to introduce us to a son of Herod and So family dynamics will be analyzed in Herod's life. Let's start here. Two peas in a pod. Have you heard that before? It's a way of describing how similar people are. Well, I'm here to tell you, Herod and his dad were two peas in a pod. This dad, Herod's dad was named Antipater, and he was from Idumea. Idumea was this country immediately south of And when Antipater was just a kid, the the Jews from Judea, they came down and conquered Idumea and forced all of them to convert to Judaism. Forcing religious conversion is always a bad idea, particularly in this case, because all the men were forced to endure circumcision. Ouch. Well, this is what Antipater grew up. He was Idumean in his heritage, but Jewish in his forced faith. When the Romans took over this whole region, they loved this possibility because they needed a ruler who could relate to the people, but not be so loyal to the people. Their first loyalty needed to be to Rome. And so this Antipater, who was Jewish by faith, but not really by nationality. They're like, boom, that's our guy. And so the Romans picked Herod's dad, Antipater, to rule, and he ruled with an iron fist. He was ruthless. He was selfish. He was cruel, just like Herod turned out to be. Herod and his dad, two peas in a pod. Now let's talk about the next. Have you heard that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? This is a little idiom that speaks to how the parents influence who the kid becomes. Why why are they similar? Because of the influence of the parents. And if you will, let's use a green apple to distinguish Herod, shall we? And his dad Antipater is here. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. The idea there in the idiom is that when the, the apple falls... It may start a new tree. The seeds in the apple start a new tree, and the new tree is so close, so similar in in proximity to 
the, the parent. What we're going to learn today is not only about uh, Herod's dad, but also about his son and about Herod's grandson and about Herod's great-grandson. And so what a journey we're going to get. And we're going to find out that dad influenced son and then dad influenced son and then dad influenced son. And as a result, they were all Jewish in faith, but evil and morally compromised Every one of them consistently. And that brings us to our last idiom. And maybe you haven't heard this one, but this is actually an idiom found in the Bible twice in the Old Testament. It says this, the parents eat the spoiled grape and the children taste the sour. You know, the whole idea, maybe you've eaten grapes without looking. And if you do that, look out because you can grab a spoiled one and pop it in your mouth and it's disgusting. But this idiom says the bad choice was made by the parents and the children taste the sour or experience the consequence of their parents' bad choice. That can happen, can't it? Where the, the, the folly of the parents has repercussions on the kid. There's a similar uh, uh, passage, actually it's four times in the Old Testament. I'll just tell you up front, I hate this passage. It's a really tough one, but it relates to the sour grapes. It says this, God punishes children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is a principle that scripture acknowledges and we're like, what? That's not fair. God, why would you do that? Well, here's the key to understanding. When, when it speaks of God punishing, often how God punishes is he allows us to experience the natural consequences of our folly. And that's really what's being uh, pointed to here is that God says, listen, not only will I let the parent experience the consequence of their folly, their folly will bring consequences to the kid and to the, what's this, first, second, third, fourth generation. And it's true. Many of us uh, know what it's like to have the poor, crazy, awful decisions of mom or dad, you know, affect you. Sometimes it's the worst expression is when you've got a mother who uses substances during pregnancy, yielding biological problems in the child. Other, other times it's genetic disposition is passed down. Other times it's just bad role modeling, but we all see it. Some of us may feel doomed because of our parents. You know, their folly is inevitably going to be seen in me and my life as well. It is a biblical principle. We're going to study it in the family of Herod. But then we're going to turn to the hope, hope found in the birth of Jesus Christ. In the Christmas story, we see that baby Jesus is brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, things of just incredible value at that point in time. You know, each of us bring things of value to Jesus every time we do things like love our neighbors well, every time we do things like serving one another in love. 
and it can also happen through giving of financial gifts. Thank you to all of you who partner with us here at the Compass Church in helping people find and follow God. If you're interested this Christmas season in partnering along with us, you can do so at any point in time by going to thecompass.net slash give. Now, with that being said, let's jump back in to our message together. Friends, you may remember from last week that Herod tried to kill Jesus by killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. But as it turns out, Joseph had been warned in a dream and he and his family, including baby Jesus, were gone in Egypt, in fact, preserved because of that flight. Well, let me, let me read Matthew two nineteen. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Herod died. Well, what do you think the response in Judea was to the death of Herod? So interesting. As Herod was on his deathbed, knowing he only had days to live, he called the there to be a conference in the Hippodrome. Remember that big athletic arena? This conference he mandated would have a representative from every town. And so they came to the Hippodrome thinking they were going to hear the last words of the dying King Herod. But no, he locked them up and stated that at the moment of my death, you will all be killed by my soldiers. Herod had heard word that the people of Judea were going to party and celebrate at the news of his death. And that so infuriated him that he said, I know how I'll stop them from partying. I'll kill some of their favorite people. And that was the plan. Now, thankfully, when Herod died, his son who took over said, yeah, yeah, that that plan of dad's, we're not going to do that. And the captives in the Hippodrome were released. But even in his death, we see how insanely mad this Herod was. Well, Joseph finds out that he's dead, and that's good news for him. It says in verse 21, Joseph took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid. You're like, wait a minute, I I thought you were afraid of Herod, and now that he's gone, what are you worried about? (laughs) It turns out that Joseph had heard that his son, Archelaus, was just as bad. In fact, uh, when Archelaus took over, I mean, weeks after taking on the throne, there was a Passover, and Archelaus sent soldiers to supervise the celebration of the Passover. And these protesters didn't like the soldiers being present at that holy moment, and they started throwing stones at the soldiers. Well, the soldiers at Archelaus's command attacked. And what was it? 3,000 protesters were slaughtered there in the first weeks of Archelaus's reign. And so this word must have gotten to Joseph that the, the son is just as bad as the father. Well, let's read on. It says in verse 22, having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee 
And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. You, you wonder, how did Jesus end up growing up in Nazareth? Well, Bethlehem was where this Archelaus was reigning. But way up north in Galilee, it was actually his brother, Antipas. Antipas was up there, and he was in charge of the Galilee area. And so Joseph thought, let's go up to Nazareth in Galilee. It'll be safer there. Well, as it turns out, this Antipas, another son of Herod, was just as bad. In fact, it was Antipas that beheaded John the Baptist. You may recall that. It was Antipas that was at the trial of Jesus Christ the night before he was crucified, put a robe on him and mocked him and ridiculed him. This Antipas, he was no good either. You know, since we're following these uh, descendants of Herod, let me read another one. Acts 12 Verses 20 to 23, King Agrippa delivered a speech to the people. Now, you should know this Agrippa is actually the grandson of Herod, okay? He delivered a speech. Apparently, he was quite a speech maker, a public speaker with quite impressive eloquence. King Agrippa delivered a speech to the people, and they shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately... Because Agrippa did not give praise to God, an angel struck him down. Wow. This arrogance. You know, he's like, yeah, I suppose I am more like a god than a human. And the Lord's like, yeah, you're done. And an angel took him out on the spot. Wow. You should know this this, uh, Agrippa, the grandson, also was responsible for executing the first disciple of Jesus. That would be James. The Bible records in Acts 12, 2, that James was taken out by the sword at the command of Agrippa, grandson of Herod. Just let's go further, shall we? Check this out. Acts 25, 23. It says Agrippa. I should pause. This Agrippa is not the same one we just read about. No, this is Agrippa II. This is the great grandson of Herod. Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room. And then Paul was brought in. Yes, this is in Caesarea where the Apostle Paul is imprisoned and facing trial. And this King Agrippa II arrives to hear Paul in in trial. And uh, you may think, oh, that's kind of sweet. This Agrippa and Bernice, they were brother and sister. You may say, I love seeing brother and sister attending events together. Yeah, no, don't don't think it's sweet. It turns out that Josephus, the first century historian, who was actually good friends with this Agrippa II, he says, yeah, what was going on between brother and sister was incest. Yes, even though they both claimed to be followers of God, faithful Jews, they were committing incest. And it just shows us again that Herod's family was all messed up. Turns out that this Agrippa II, he's the last of the Herodian dynasty. He was the king when uh, the Romans came in in 70 AD and wiped out Jerusalem, knocked down the temple, and ended any form of government in that place. And so there ends 
the evil line of King Herod. You know, just as it says the punishment will go to the third and fourth generation. Yeah, we see the consequence of evil just continuing in this family. Some have called this a generational curse. And it's interesting. Scientists have actually identified this principle to be true. For example, if if your parents were alcoholics, scientists have found that you're four times as likely to struggle with alcohol. If, if your parents were drug addicts, you're eight times as likely uh, to struggle with drug uh, abuse. If your parents are overweight, two times as likely to struggle with being overweight. If your parents were criminals, you're three times as likely to be a criminal yourself. If they're angry, it's more likely for you to struggle with anger. If they're lazy, more likely for you to struggle with laziness. If they're spiritually immature or not believers at all, It's so much more likely you're going to be spiritually immature. This is a terrible principle. And yet there's hope. Shall we turn to some hope? Let's do that now. It says in Jeremiah 31, 29, In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes, but the children have the bitter taste. How about that? That's one of the places we get that parable from. In those days, they won't say it anymore. What what days is Jeremiah referring to? He's prophesying that in the messianic age, when the promised Messiah comes, when, when is that? Christmas! When Jesus is born, he will bring in a new era. And this dynamic that's very true about kids just being like their parents and experiencing the consequence of their parents' bad choices. God says, I'm going to bring a dynamic that changes that. It won't operate, at least for believers, it won't operate like it used to. This uh, hope is, uh, Jeremiah was around 600 years before Christ, and at that same time, Ezekiel was a fellow prophet who said almost the same thing. Ezekiel 18.2, You have a proverb, the parents eat sour grapes, but the children have the bitter taste. The Lord announces you will not use that proverb anymore. In the messianic age, things will be different. And and we ask, in what way? Well, let's stick in that chapter, Ezekiel 18, and let's explore the description of this glorious freedom a little more. Verse 14 of that chapter says, suppose that a son sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. That son will not die because of his father's sin. He will surely live. Isn't that beautiful? There's a example there that there'll be somebody who says, I don't want to be like my parents. There are, there are ways I want to follow their example, but there are other ways I want to rise above that. And God says they won't be a chip off the old block and exactly like mom and dad. They will be different in this dynamic of you living with the consequence of their failure. It doesn't have to be anymore. You say, okay, how, how? What's the, what changes with the birth of Jesus that makes this proverb obsolete? Well, back in Ezekiel 18, let me read you another little verse. It says, get a new heart and a new spirit. See, that's the key. In the Messianic age, we will have access to a new heart 
and a new spirit. And we are like, where, where do I get that? How, how do I get that? Well, there's more clarity on the heart and spirit a little later in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Here, God's speaking. And God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Okay, what's different about the messianic age that yields the old proverb that people just turn out like their parents? Leaves that obsolete? It's this. God's promise that with the coming of the Messiah, there would be two dynamics, a new heart and the new spirit. I actually have a little props here. We're going to use this to be a reminder of the new heart. And then when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, uh, at the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus, he comes with fire. So often fire is used as a picture of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there as just a reminder that these are the two dynamics that change. A new heart and then the flame, the new Holy Spirit within. Just to help us understand those a little more. Well, it talks about the new heart. This is actually a reference to uh, regeneration. Remember Jesus says, because of me, you can be born again. This newness of life. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. There's a fundamental change in us when we become a believer, it's like our old heart that was crusty is replaced with a heart that's soft and dynamic and responsive to the will and guidance of God. New heart. And then the new spirit, yes, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the Lord Jesus says this, When the Spirit comes, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord says that all Christians after Pentecost have God's spirit within. So not only do we have a new heart, but now we've got his spirit, his Holy Spirit, who brings power, a power dynamic that we didn't have without him. And these are the things that are game changers, though the principle of kids ending up like their parents is true. With these dynamics of a new heart and a new power that is by the spirit, there's change that can be enjoyed. And so I would just ask you, do you have a pessimism regarding what you anticipate in your life spiritually? Maybe you're like, I've never led anyone to the Lord. My parents never led anyone to the Lord. I don't expect I'll do much more than they did. Or do you say, yeah, my parents were kind of a wreck. I'm going to be a wreck too. It's just the way it is. You know, there are some people that are amazing. God does much in them and through them, but that's not how our family is. We're just kind of blah. Don't do that. That's adapting the old mindset of the inevitability of us repeating the example of our parents. With the new heart promised in Christ and the spirit of God within Friends, there's reason to expect radical change in you that's nothing like what your parents were like. We need to dream big, that God can do in us a transformation and an impact through us that is way beyond what previous generations of our family have ever experienced. And then when the good stuff starts to happen, not only will we rejoice in the change, 
But that impact on generations beyond us can shift to be a positive thing. The positive change in us can be a great blessing to the next generation. You wanted to end by telling you of a just inspiring story. Maybe you know of Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters was one of the most amazing jazz singers back years ago and actresses. I mean, she was getting awards that African-American women had never gotten before in her acting ability. And even though her life was doing well career-wise, morally speaking, she feared she was becoming what she was born into. See, she was the result of a rape. Her father was a rapist who raped her mother. And then her mother was so crushed by that experience that her mother kind of just abandoned little baby Ethel with the mother's two sisters. So Ethel was raised by her aunts, both of whom were alcoholics. And so she would say, I, I didn't know love. My upbringing, both genetically and environmentally, was so dysfunctional. And Ethel feared she was just going to become what her family was. But then she found Jesus Christ, actually at a Billy Graham crusade at the Madison Square Garden. And as she was radically saved, she learned about the promise of a new heart and a power within the Holy Spirit. And Ethel started to dream big and said, I don't have to be anything like what I came from. I can be extraordinarily transformed and I can be useful by God. In fact, she came to Billy Graham and she said, hey, Anyway, I could help your evangelistic ministry. And Billy Graham said, yes. And for 20 years, uh, Ethel Waters was an evangelist working with Billy Graham, speaking and sharing of the transformation God had brought in her life and singing. Her famous song was the his eye is on the sparrow. And for 20 years, she was an integral part of working with Billy Graham to lead to millions upon millions of conversions to Jesus Christ. Wow. That is not a woman following in the steps of her ancestors, but being radically transformed, creating a new lineage in the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so grateful for this study. Uh, we acknowledge this principle that people tend to be like their parents, their ancestors. But we celebrate that with the birth of Jesus Christ, there's change. There's new dynamics at foot. It's this new heart and this new power in the spirit that's available. And Lord, we want to dream big. Would you give us an, a, a spiritual ambition a dream as to what you want to do in us and through us. And may we strive for great things in your power and see you do new works, creating a new lineage of faithfulness to Christ. That's our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Before you take off, fill out that online connection card so we know that you have been here and we know how to be praying for you as we are gearing up for Christmas. And speaking of that, it is officially time. Christmas time is here. We are excited to have you join us for our Christmas Eve services coming up the next time we're together. There are all sorts of in-person service options as well as online service options. Find what's going to work best for you 
and your friends, families, neighbors, co-workers, and so many others that you want to invite to join you by going to thecompass.net slash Christmas. We look forward to seeing you all then, to being with you all then, and until then, Merry Christmas.